good to see you guys. Good to be back. It's a, it was a, a great couple of weeks here. I had a chance to uh, go with all the kids for a vacation to Disney. And you guys knew if I went to Disney, I was going to come back with a Baby Yoda um, shirt. So this is my Baby Yoda Christmas sweater. Um, and then I uh, had a chance to uh, go on a cruise, which was, was great, except I just stayed in my room the entire week because I was... Uh, it was a work cruise where I was working on trying to hit a deadline for my dissertation. So I spent about eight hours a day for a week uh, working it out, but I got it done and I got it sent out. So, oh, thank you. So <laughs> I'm waiting now to, to hear back from the dissertation committee and hopefully I'll have a proposal defense uh, coming up in the, in the spring. But uh, um, I'm glad that I got that done. So Julie had a great time though, so. <laughs> Uh, one of the cool things that we kind of uh, take for granted is that we have not one, not two, not three, but we have four accounts of the life of Jesus in the Bible. And these four ancient manuscripts, um, they, they tell us a lot about the life of Jesus, but they, they tell it to us from four completely different eyewitness perspectives. And while they certainly talk about a lot of similar things, and they have similar stories between them, they are not identical. In fact, as you read through the four Gospels, you might even notice some things that you would kind of view as, well, maybe that's a contradiction between this and between that. And that's because they're coming from four different people and their eyewitness perspectives. And these four accounts are in a portion of our Bible known as the New Testament, the beginning of the New Testament, and they are the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And another interesting thing with regards to Christmas and the Advent season is that two of these accounts don't even say anything about the actual birth of Jesus. Mark and John start out with the ministry of John the Baptist, which happens about 30 years or so after the birth of Jesus. But Matthew and Luke both talk about the birth of Jesus. Luke, we just heard some scripture reading from Luke. Luke tells that Christmas story, that iconic Christmas story. We remember hearing it in Charlie Brown Christmas, right, when Linus comes out on the stage and it begins, you know, with an angel going to John the Baptist's mother. And then the angel goes and announces to teenage Mary that she's going to give birth to the Son of God. Luke begins with these angelic announcements to start the Christmas story. So three of the Gospels at least start with story since they are the stories of Jesus, after all. But Matthew's gospel is different. Matthew's gospel is a little bit unique because Matthew doesn't start with a story at all. He starts with a genealogy. In fact, you could read the first few verses through the book of Matthew, and you could think, I'm not sure if I even want to read this because I don't really even know a lot of these people. Let, let me read for you how the book of Matthew begins. Like, eventually he gets to the Christmas story, but this is how he starts out. He says, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then Matthew 1, verse 2, he says this, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And he goes on and on and on and on. And he describes the genealogy of Jesus, the family tree of Jesus, you know, the Christmas tree of Jesus, if you will, from Father Abraham all the way to the birth of Jesus. 
And again, one might wonder, why, why would he do that? Why not just start with the story? And I believe there are a couple reasons. First off, he was writing very specifically to a Jewish audience. And Matthew is about to, to kind of lay the evidence for his case that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God, that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. And so the very first question that a Jewish audience would have asked before they even wanted to hear the rest of the story that Matthew was going to share is, is they would have been like, wait, 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 wait. Is he related to Father Abraham and is he related to King David? Because if he isn't related to Father Abraham, and if he isn't related to King David, then we can't take him seriously as a candidate for the Messiah. Because God promised that Father Abraham, if you guys remember this, the Old Testament account, that he would have more descendants than the stars in the sky. And that through his lineage, one day there would be a descendant that would come that would bless the entire world. And that was a major messianic prophecy that the Jews had. And then there was a second prophecy that God had said to King David that he would one day have a descendant that would rule on the throne forever. And, and if there was going to be a physical, literal Messiah, this person would have to be related to Father Abraham and to King David. And so Matthew, knowing his audience and being Jewish himself, he decides, well, let's start by answering the big question first. Who is Jesus ultimately related to? What is his family tree? And so he gives this genealogy. But then he does something very, very unusual. In this primarily male-dominated society, this male-dominated patriarchal culture, he then goes and does something so unusual. While the genealogy should have been all males, Matthew throws in a bunch of women. In fact, he mentions four women in the genealogy, which is unheard of at the time. You wouldn't have done that. And not only does he throw in four women, he seems to pause and emphasize people that you and I would have never emphasized, that we would have completely left out of the genealogy especially if we were trying to convince people that Jesus was the Son of God. But Matthew just, he seems to just do everything he possibly can to cause people to actually second guess that Jesus is the Messiah, to cause people to second guess the genealogy of Jesus. And here's why this is fascinating. In ancient times, the only histories that were written were written by hired historians, by people who were paid to write the history. In fact, when, when you grew up and, and you went to school and, and maybe you took an ancient history class in college and you studied ancient history, especially before the first century, most of the histories that we have were written by people who were hired by wealthy, wealthy people to write history. They were hired by emperors. They were hired by kings. They were hired by rich rulers. And they hired these people, these historical writers, they hired them to make them look good. That's what they did. And so consequently, there are these gaps that we find throughout history. And if you're a historian, you know, you know this. There are these big gaps that come up. They'll make a big deal out of a military victory, and then they'll skip over a defeat in battle. 
They'll make a big deal out of all their kids who were successes and who were famous and who did great things. And they'll skip over people in their family tree who didn't turn out so well, the misfits. In fact, in some cases, they don't even mention the names of some of their children. Why? Because they weren't notable. So why mention them? Consequently, oftentimes in ancient history, you will find gaps. But then we come to this ancient document from Matthew that begins with the genealogy of Jesus, the Christmas tree, if you will, the family tree of Jesus. And Matthew goes out of his way to make us question some of the characters in Jesus' family tree. In fact, Matthew emphasizes people he did not need to mention at all. For example, again, culturally, this should have been an all-male list, and he should have highlighted the most positive, well-known names in this list because he's trying to connect Jesus the man to the lineage of King David and to before him, Father Abraham, in a male-dominated culture. But instead, he gives us the names of four women. Two of those women he should have never mentioned. Three of the four were not even Jewish. So Matthew goes out of his way to say, oh yeah, by the way, Jesus, who I'm about to tell you is the Messiah, is not of pure Jewish bloodline. The Messiah is a mutt. <laughs> Which doesn't help Matthew's case. Listen to how this goes. Here, here's what he says in verse 3. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. So he starts to introduce us to this woman named Tamar. Next week, I'm going to unpack for you guys the story of Tamar. You probably don't know the story of Tamar. But let me just tell you, there are some verses in the story of Tamar I do not feel comfortable reading out loud in church, and I will not. Okay? It is a very, very, very Jerry Springer-like story from the Bible. It's rated R with a capital R is the story of Tamar, okay? Like way out there. There are some verses you're just gonna have to check out for yourself. In fact, some of you might start reading your Bible this week because of the story of Tamar, okay? <laughs> but again, here's the deal. There was no need at all for Matthew to mention Tamar. Just stick with the storyline, Matthew. Give us the highlights about Jesus' family tree. But no, Matthew pauses and he throws in Tamar. And everybody who knew Jew Jewish history, the audience that he was talking to, when he brought up that name, they would have been like, whoa, did he just say Tamar? And then he goes on. Verse 3, Perez, the father of Hezron, Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. He throws in another woman. She wasn't Jewish either. And if you're a church person, you've probably heard of Rahab, right? I mean, Rahab had a nickname, didn't she? She was Rahab the what? Yeah, like, seriously, Matthew? <laughs> you're going to throw that in the genealogy? In fact, when you guys get to heaven one day and maybe you meet Rahab, make sure you don't go, oh, Rahab, hey, you're the, um, the lady from the Old Testament, right? <laughs> We're going to talk about Rahab on Christmas morning. Ho, ho, ho. Merry Christmas, everybody. So anyway, th there was just no reason for Matthew 
to bring up these people. And then in verse 5, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Now, Ruth was actually a very positive story. She's, she's an incredible character from Scripture. She's an incredible example of a godly woman in Scripture. In fact, there's a whole book of the Bible named after her, the book of Ruth. But again, there's a problem. Ruth wasn't Jewish. She was from Moab. And, and I know when I say Moab, immediately your guy's mind goes to the book of Amos. No, but a Jewish person back then would have known that. And they would have said, Ruth is not Jewish. And again, we go, Matthew, come on, Matthew, are you trying to convince everybody that Jesus is the Messiah or not? Because if you're trying to connect Jesus as Messiah, why all the off-ramps? Why bring up the names of all these controversial characters in his family tree? Why the distractions? Verse 6, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Say what? Why don't you just say Solomon's son and so-and-so and so-and-so? I mean, why don't you just stick with the men, Matthew? It's like he throws in another scandal into the genealogy of Jesus on purpose. Solomon, whose mother, he doesn't even say her name, but everybody he was talking to instantly knew her name. Matthew writes, Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now, let me ask all of you Bible scholars a question this morning. Who was Solomon's mother? Yeah, Bathsheba. Like, you don't even have to be a church person to have heard of David and Bathsheba and the scandal of David and Bathsheba. And Matthew doesn't say Bathsheba. He doesn't just say Bathsheba. He makes it worse. He says, whose mother was another man's wife. And he just kind of sticks the knife in the wound and twists it a little bit. And he points out the big, bad, ugly scar in the greatest Jewish hero of all time, King David's life. He didn't highlight David who defeated Goliath. No, he points out David's adultery with Bathsheba and how he murdered her husband Uriah to get her. It's the worst sin King David has committed in his entire life, and Matthew puts a spotlight on it in the genealogy. Why would he do that? Why? Here's why I think he did it. Because you see, Matthew had spent three years with Jesus during his ministry. Matthew stood next to an empty tomb. Matthew saw Jesus die on a cross. Matthew heard Jesus teach. He watched him perform miracle after miracle after miracle. And Matthew understood something maybe better than anybody in that time. He understood that all of these shady characters in Jesus' family tree, with all their baggage and all their sin and all their embarrassing stories, that they were the point of the Christmas story that he was about to tell. Matthew knew that the season of Advent began with darkness, that it began with deep despair, 
of people who were lost and trapped in their sins. People who felt like a holy, perfect, righteous God could never love them. That they would never measure up. And that God was absent. That God had forsaken them because they were sinners. But Matthew understood more than most that this was exactly the issue that Jesus had come to address. And that Jesus didn't just come for sinners, but Matthew wanted the world to know that Jesus had actually come from sinners. See, Matthew knew firsthand that Christmas was a story of light coming from darkness and forgiveness coming into the world that only knew condemnation. And the other thing that Matthew knew, and, and maybe this is what motivated him to add all of these jacked up characters into the family tree of Jesus, is for Matthew, this was also his story. Because you see, the people like Rahab and Tamar and Ruth, these were his kind of people. These were the kind of people that were his friends. These were the kind of people that he hung out with. And these were the kind of people that Matthew actually hung out with the day that he met Jesus for the very first time. That story happened in a place called Capernaum. Now, I've been to Capernaum when I visited Israel seven years ago. Um, Capernaum is a beautiful port city. It's a, a little town on the, on the coast of the Sea of Galilee. They call the Sea of Galilee a, a sea because it is a massive, massive lake. And they have these little ports all around the, the coast. And Capernaum is one of those. Uh, for those of you who are going to join us on our adventure to Israel in 2024, about a year from now, you're going to have a chance to go and see Capernaum. And so one day, Jesus and his disciples, they stop in the town of Capernaum. They get off the boat. And as they get off the boat, a group comes up to them, and they drop down this paralyzed man in front of Jesus. Somehow they had heard that Jesus was coming to town, and people had heard, you know, about the miracles that he performed. And, and so they were like, can you do something for our friend, Jesus? Can you help him out? And by this time, a crowd had gathered because whenever Jesus traveled and whenever he went places, oftentimes crowds of people would gather because they had heard about this miracle worker. And Jesus looks down and he sees this, this paralyzed man sitting on the mat. And so he, he looks down at him and then Jesus says something to him. He says, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. Be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. Now, that's not why his friends had brought him to Jesus. I mean, they were hoping that Jesus would say, be healed. Stand up and walk. But Jesus didn't say that. He said, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. And then perhaps Jesus turned and started to walk away with the disciples. Well, the religious leaders and the teachers of the law were also witnessing this. And they said, wait, 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 wait. hold on a minute. Hold on a minute. You can't say that. You can't tell that man he's forgiven of his sins. Only God can do that. And so Jesus stops and he responds and he says, have I not told you? I've been given the authority to forgive sins. And now the religious leaders got mad. I mean, they got hot. 
And they're like, that's blasphemy. You can't say that. This man has committed blasphemy. He's saying that he's on the same level as God, that he can forgive people's sins. And all of a sudden, there's all of this drama and conflict going on on this pier in the town of Capernaum. And before more drama can happen, Jesus just kind of cuts them off, and he looks at this young man who's paralyzed on the ground, and he says, oh, yeah, by the way, why don't you also roll up your mat and get up and go home? You're not only forgiven of your, your, your sins, but to prove that I can forgive people of their sins, you're also healed. Get up and go home. And he was. And all the jaws dropped. And everyone was amazed. And when Matthew wrote his account, he wanted his audience to know that the moment he met Jesus for the first time was right after that happened. Right after that incident in Capernaum, right there at the end of the pier, that that's when he was going to meet Jesus for the first time. Because moments later, Matthew would be eyeball to eyeball with the Savior of the world. And here's how it happened. Matthew 9, verse 9, if you want to follow along in your Bibles, here's what it says. It says, as Jesus went on from there after healing the man, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. And I really do think that when Matthew was, you know, later in life maybe playing what's the most embarrassing moment in your life game, um, this might have been his story. Let me tell you the most embarrassing moment of my life. It was what I was doing when I first met Jesus. I was sitting in a tax collector's booth. And here's why this would have been embarrassing. Tax collectors in this time, in this culture, were hated. I mean, we don't like them today, right? Any fans of the IRS in here? No, right? But in this day and age, they were considered to be traitors to the Jewish people. See, the Romans would sell the privilege to people to be able to collect taxes. And if you were a tax collector, you were allowed to add a surcharge to the Roman tax that you were collecting, which meant tax collectors were often very wealthy people because they basically robbed and cheated their fellow citizens with government authority, with the stamp of approval from the Roman government. So this foreign government had taken over the Jewish people, and now some of their own people were robbing them under the authority of this government. They were absolutely hated. Tax collectors were hated. Uh, it was about the worst thing a good, moral, godly Jewish person could possibly do was to decide to become a tax collector. It was betraying your nation. It was betraying your fellow man. It was betraying God. You're a traitor. You're an outcast. In fact, there were two categories they would talk about. They would talk about sinners and tax collectors. I mean, they were so bad, they weren't even grouped in with the sinners. They got their own category, the sinners and the tax collectors. That's who Matthew was. He was an embarrassment to his family. He would not have been allowed to go to temple. His only friends in life would have been other tax collectors and sinners. They would have been the only people he could hang out with. And so there he sits at a tax collecting booth when Jesus, holiness personified, God in a bod, if you will, 
walks up to him. And there's no telling what went through his mind as he sees Jesus approaching him for the first time, followed by his disciples, who all hated tax collectors. I mean, as they approach Matthew, you know, maybe Peter and Andrew and James and John, maybe they already had figured out what they were going to say to him. You know, do they spit on him? Do they curse him out? Do they give him a dirty look? Do they kick his table? Do they sneer? What are they going to do to this traitor of their people as they get ready to walk by? But then Jesus does something unthinkable before the disciples can even do anything. Here's what he says, Matthew 9, 9. Follow me, he told him. Jesus stops at Matthew's table and he says, follow me. He says, Matthew, why don't you come with us? Why don't you join us? And the disciples are like, say what? Jesus, are you kidding? You want him to come with us? And maybe you know the story, but then they decide to go somewhere. Do you guys remember where they went? Matthew says, where do you want to go? And Jesus says, let's go to your house, Matthew. Let's go hang out at your house. And Peter's like, there is no way I'm going to his house, Jesus. I mean, people already think we're kind of freaks, Jesus. If we go hang out with the tax collector, I mean, it's over for us. Our reputation is gone. And Jesus is like, zip it, Peter. I'm talking right now. And as Matthew wrote his story, he must have smiled as he remembered what Peter and the guys originally thought of him. And Jesus said, Matthew, ignore them. Why don't we go to your house and have dinner? And even better, why don't you invite some of your friends over too? I'd love to meet all of your friends, Matthew. Let's have a meal together. And as the story goes on, Jesus and his disciples gather together for dinner at Matthew's house with Matthew and his friends. And who are Matthew's friends, church? Who are they? Yeah, tax collectors and sinners. Those are the only people he can hang out with, right? Because he's a tax gatherer. I mean, he could throw a great party. He was pretty rich. He'd ripped off a lot of people. He could probably have the money to throw a great party. He just didn't have the right friends. His friends were all tax collectors and sinners. And pretty soon, this big rockin' party is happening at Matthew's house. And all the religious leaders hear about it, and they start to gather outside of Matthew's house. They don't dare go onto the property or go to the front door, because if they did, they wouldn't be able to go to temple, because tax gatherers and sinners, they had a special kind of cooties, and you didn't want to be around them if you were a you know, good religious person. But they kind of motion to some of Jesus' disciples to come outside, because they want to talk to them. And some of Jesus' disciples, they come outside, and they say, we need to talk to you guys because we don't understand your teacher at all. We don't understand this rabbi Jesus of yours. On the one hand, he talks about righteousness and holiness, and he talks about the law, and he talks about how perfect and holy God is. And then we see him in there with tax collectors and sinners getting their cooties, having dinner with them. We don't get that. He's a mystery and a contradiction rolled up into one. And Jesus overhears this. And Matthew witnesses all of this. 
And later he's going to write it down. But Jesus comes outside and Jesus says this in verse 12. And don't miss this, church. So powerful. He says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. At which point Matthew and his sinner friends could have all been a little bit offended, right? But they weren't. Because do you know what people who are far from God know, church? They know they're far from God. They feel far from God. Matthew knew. His friends knew. They probably figured there's no way we're ever going to have a relationship with God. If we even tried to walk in the temple, it would burn down. And then Jesus said this, verse 13. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Why'd you come, Jesus? I didn't come from, for people who think they're perfect and they've got it all right with God. I came for them. I came for the sinners. And so as Matthew considered his story with Jesus, he, he realized the story that he was about to tell. And he knew the critical importance of including sinners into the genealogy of Jesus. And Matthew understood maybe better than any of the other gospel writers that the story of Jesus, that in fact the Christmas story, is a story about God drawing near to those who had drifted away. It's a story about God stepping into the darkness and leaning in to those who had leaned away. And Matthew understood that he needed to highlight the people in the genealogy who were jacked up and messed up and, and, and just so far away from God because not only did those people matter to God, but they reflected why Jesus came in the first place. See, what Matthew discovered after watching Jesus for three years, after standing at the cross, after standing at an empty tomb, was Matthew realized that the rules about God had changed. And that from now on, that he, a tax collector, a sinner, a man who had failed in every way, who had broken every law, still had the opportunity to approach God, not on the basis of what he had or hadn't done, but on the basis of what God had done for him. That God had sent Jesus. That's the message of the Christmas story. The message of the Christmas story is God drawing near to those who felt lost in the darkness. Isn't that awesome, church? Don't you think as Matthew wrote the genealogy of Jesus, he probably chuckled? He probably laughed and smiled? Every time he got to one of those seedy characters, he thought, I got to mention Tamar, got to put her in there, got to throw in Rahab the prostitute, got to talk about Bathsheba, got to talk about them. They're the point of the story I'm getting ready to tell. And so here's what we're going to do. For the next few weeks leading up to Christmas Day, we're going to look at some of these shady characters from the genealogy of Jesus. 
from the Christmas tree of Jesus. Some of these characters you may have heard of before. Some of them you may have missed. Chances are many of you don't know the story of Judah and Tamar. And why in the world, Pastor, at Christmas time, are we going to focus on crazy characters from the Bible? It's because when the angel announced the birth of Jesus, the angel announced Jesus as the Savior of the world, the Savior from sin. And that's the point of the incredible hope of Christmas that God sent us savior. And so the genealogy, the, the Christmas tree is the perfect launch because it highlights the need for a savior. So I'll tell you guys right up front, here's my goal for all of us in this series. If you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, if you were raised Catholic or Baptist or Nazarene like me, this is my agenda for all of us. That if you're a person who approaches God based on what you've done and what you haven't done, my hope for you is that over the next several weeks that you would consider abandoning that way of thinking about God completely. Because no matter how good you are, no matter how good you've been in your life, how consistent you've been at mass or at church or at confession or whatever you think you have to do to make yourself right with God, the Christmas story teaches us that it's not good enough. And at the same time, if you're a person who would say, Pastor, there are things in my life that I'm so ashamed of. There are things in my past. There's just too much baggage. There's too much sin and shame for me to ever believe that God would accept me. My hope for you as well is that you would abandon that entire way of thinking. See, the story of Christmas, the story of Jesus is a story of God changing once and for all the way the people of the world think about him. Those who think they're righteous, and those who know they're not. And so my hope for us this Christmas season is to get to a place in our lives where we're no longer coming to God based purely on the fact of, of our works and what we've done, but that we come based on the fact that through Jesus, God has done something incredible for us. He has declared sinners forgiven by the grace of a Savior. And so as Matthew wrote the genealogy, how could he resist the temptation to include the failures, the losers, the outcasts, the sinners? Because they were the point of Christmas. Can we pray, church? Heads bowed and eyes closed. Heavenly Father, God, as we kind of dive deeper into this series over the next couple weeks and we start to unpack this genealogy that you've given us through the writing of Matthew, Father, first and foremost, we, we just thank you for Matthew. Lord, we thank you for this ancient manuscript that has survived thousands of years to come into our hands 
today in 2022 and the powerful message that it conveys that no matter who we are, no matter what we've done, the people matter to you. Sinful people matter to you. Rejects matter to you. Outcasts matter to you. People who feel like they can never measure up, you love them. They matter to you. They matter so much that you sent the greatest gift into the world. You sent your son, Jesus. You sent a savior who came not for the righteous, but for sinners to be able to save us from our sins and restore us into a relationship with you. For those of us here who maybe struggle with that sometimes, Father, I pray that over the next couple of weeks that you would just shatter our old theology and our old way of looking at you and you would replace it with a new understanding of how amazing your grace truly is. For those of us here who have people in our lives who we love and our hearts just break for because they seem so far from you, God. They seem lost in darkness. Father, I, I pray that you would, you would use the lives of people in our church to reach out, to touch, to maybe, maybe grab some Christmas Eve invitation cards in the lobby today and invite somebody, maybe that they're a little bit scared to invite, to come to church over the next couple weeks, to be able to hear this powerful truth that you're a God who loves them and who's opened a door for them. A God who desires to have a personal relationship with them. I pray that lives would be changed over the next couple weeks in this series as people walk through these doors during Christmas time and maybe they, ha they hear an understanding of God that they've never heard before and it moves their life into a different direction that has eternal consequences. And for the person here this morning, who maybe would say, wow, I, I never even realized that a genealogy could speak so much. And if there's a God who loves me like that, if there's really a God who's opened the door to me no matter what I've done, who's ready to meet me right where I'm at, even as I'm messed up and jacked up as I am right now. That's a God I'm ready to follow. So if that's you this morning, I, I just wanna give you the opportunity as we do often around here to take a step of faith today, even a baby step of faith. Maybe just have five seconds of courage to lift your hand and say, Pastor, that's me. If God is willing to love me like that and meet me right where I'm at, I need that kind of a God in my life. I'm ready. I'm ready to accept Jesus today as my Savior. I need that in my life. If that's you today, would you just lift up a hand boldly and say, that's me. I'm ready for that first step. Praise God. I see someone in the back already. Praise God. Another person on the side. Praise God. Somebody else in the middle. 
Anybody else this morning? I, I don't want to let this moment pass. Again, I think this is the greatest decision you could ever make in your entire life. Is there anybody else here who says, I'm ready to be a part of that Christmas story. I need Jesus in my life. Praise God, I see that as well. I want to pray for you guys, for those of you in here who are already followers of Christ. Maybe we can pray along with these brothers and sisters who've made some decisions today. We pray, Heavenly Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for meeting us exactly where we are. Thank you for Matthew, who made it so clear that you're a God who cares about us no matter what we've done, that we matter to you. And that just like you met Matthew at the tax collector station, you are ready to meet us wherever we're at, even in our lowest low, even sitting in a pit. And you're ready to say two things to us. Follow me. Follow me. God, today we, we want to grab your hand and we want to say, yes, Jesus. I want to follow you. I want to turn from my old life and I want to step into a brand new life in a personal relationship with you. And God, I don't even know how that really looks like fully right now, but I'm ready to take a baby step and step by step, day by day, God, I want to walk in a love relationship with you. I want to grow in a relationship with you. I want a new life. New life with Jesus. Thank you for loving me first, God. I love you for the rest of my life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Church, can we celebrate some decisions made today? Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. As the worship team um, leads us, let, let's stand together and let's just sing and celebrate what God is doing. If, if you need time to pray, if there's some things that you need to kind of uh, get right with God. Again, the altars are always open. You can come forward. You can pray uh, by yourself. You can come pray with friends and family. We welcome you to do that. But let's sing and celebrate.
our time this morning. I, I want to share a couple quick announcements with you guys. I want to invite Leo to, to come up here from behind the, the drum set. And as he's doing that, I want to let you guys know, um, if you're part of the conflict resolution small group, um, they are meeting with their final session today. That's going to be happening shortly after the service downstairs in our teen room, in our fuse room. Um, I also want to let you know, yesterday was our student ministry, our few student ministry silent auction. They were doing a fundraiser yesterday to be able to raise money for the Nazarene Youth Conference. They're going to be traveling to Florida for the camp over the summer. Um, and so it was, it was a, a great night last night. I think about 70% of the items that were up for auction were sold. Um, so there's a few items remaining. What they, and that's awesome. Let's give a big hand for that. It was great. Um, I think they raised about $800 last night, which was awesome. Um, so the remaining items they've put out on tables, they've left them out in the gym. And I want to encourage you guys, if you get an opportunity today, to go down to the gym at the end of service day and look at some of the items they have left. They have, you know, Patriots, ball caps, and things like that down there. And, um, you know, offer something to Pastor TJ or make a donation to our students. They would really appreciate it if you could do that for them this morning. And also, down near the gym, um, for the very first time, First Light South Portland Church of the Nazarene has released um, a music album, a CD, um, called A Christmas Together. And it actually has an original song on it, too, called A Christmas Time Together that uh, Leo 
and Jim uh, wrote and, and produced. And so I think that's really incredible. Um, these are our, our $10 down there. It was done by a lot of folks who have been on the worship team and a part of the worship team over the years, contributed to making this happen. Um, but they're not looking for profits for them. I wanna share that with you. There's actually something that a, a large percent of the proceeds is gonna go towards that's near and dear to Leo's heart and the worship team's heart. And so I wanna have him kind of share that with you today, Leo. So can, can you kind of share with everybody um, as they go down there and if they grab a, a, one of these CDs or if they go on iTunes, it's also available on iTunes and they download this music, um, where, what are they contributing to as well? Well, um, the proceeds are gonna be going to the Kidney Foundation, which is dear to my heart. Um, some of you may know many years ago, I had a men's quartet and on the men's quartet was a gentleman named Mike Chase. <laughs> Bear with me. Um, he was the longest living dialysis patient in the state of Maine. And then when he was with the quartet, he passed away. And we decided to, at the time, to get hold of the Kidney Foundation and raise money for the Kidney Foundation under his name. And we did that for like four or five years and raised a lot of money. And it was incredible what God did there. And so when I felt God calling me to create a Christmas album um, and to bring great people that I've been with for 20 years up here, um, it was a no-brainer that it wasn't going to be about the money. It was going to be about passing it forward and helping people and taking our talents to do that. And so the Kidney Foundation is dear to my heart, and that is part of it. And the other one is... Um, my friend Hank over there and the ministry that he created that the prison ministry called the Transformation Center is the end of my heart as well and also this church and the community all around us which is a great ministry. Absolutely. For those of you who don't know the Transformation Project Hank, yeah. you know, Hank, really put is your a, hand up yep. if you want to know anything <laughs> about that. Hank is one of the lead guys in it all is. of this and it's a it, great ministry. It's a ministry we support, we as, support. as a church. Yes. Um, our worship team goes and helps with functions there. I, I go and assist there. We actually contribute um, some of our, our uh, revenue as a church um, towards supporting the Transformation Project along with ministries like Life Essentials um, as well throughout the year. Transformation Project has been instrumental in really helping break cycles of repeat conviction by helping people who are coming out of prison um, being able to get back into society and change the direction and course of their life. And we believe, you know, that's what the church should be about, about transformed lives. And so we support um, the work of the Transformation Project. So if you, again, want to be able to get some great music for Christmas time and also be able to support those ministries, I want to encourage you, go down the hall towards the gym, uh, buy a CD for $10, support the teens with what they're doing. Um, I know that it would, it would bless all of us if you guys did that. Thank you. Yep. And if anybody has any questions or anything, please come and talk to me. I can share things with you behind the scenes that was great building this album and how God just blessed it from the beginning. Yep. And I thank you for your support, and God bless you, and Merry Christmas. Sounds good. Leo will be down there to chat with you guys, okay? All right. Let me bless you guys. Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much um, for the people of this church, Lord God, and I just pray blessings upon them today, Lord. I pray that, again, you would give us wisdom to know what to do with what we've heard today from this incredible account from Matthew, Lord God. You would give us, some, Lord, the courage to actually take action and maybe change some of our thinking about you, God, and who you are and um, how you relate to us, Father. 
Lord, so that we can step into a greater story and a greater relationship with you. Father, we thank you for being the God of transformed lives, the God of new beginnings, the God who's ready to meet us exactly where we are and give us a new story. You are amazing and we love you. We give you all the glory today in your son's name, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. Thank you.